Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning uh, recognizing that we are in need of your work in our lives, recognizing that we are a dependent people, the fact that we require breath, we require oxygen. Lord, you give that to us. Each second, each breath, you give that to us, and we are dependent upon you. We realize that, Lord, as we sleep at night and are defenseless. We realize again that we are dependent upon you. We are a dependent people. And as we're here this morning, Lord, we need you. We need your work in our lives. We need your work this morning. Lord, we are uh, here on your day. This is your house. These are your people. And this is your word. I pray that you, by your spirit, would minister to us from it. Lord, we need you and we're dependent upon you this morning. Lord, I think also of the fact that it's Memorial Day tomorrow and where we remember the service members who have given their lives for our freedom, given their lives so that we can meet together without fear. We can pray together out loud without fear. We're not under oppression. We are not enslaved. We're free, and men and women have given their lives so that we can be free. And, and Lord, it reminds me of what Jesus said, that greater love has no one than this. Someone lay down his life for his friends. We receive that gift, and and, uh, we praise you for it. And we uh, give thanks for uh, their protection of us, their fight for us, and their sacrifice for us. Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, and, and I think about our seniors who are graduating and going to be departing to various places. Lord, I pray for your blessing on them this morning. I pray that as they uh, flip through that new Bible and uh, follow along with us and turn to the passages we talk about, Lord, I pray that you would impress upon them the truth of your word, the weight of your word, the importance of your word, that they would value it, that they would love it, that they would see that this is their lifeline wherever they go, that they can take your word and uh, and have that lifeline with you. They can know truth about you and about themselves from your word. Lord, as we turn to First Timothy today, as we look at these topics, I pray for your blessing. I pray for your leading. I pray, Lord, that your spirit even now would be moving in our midst, that we would uh, be able to set aside those things that distract us, the busy week that we had or the crazy or painful week that we had, or maybe the excitement of things upcoming or maybe the the dread of things upcoming, that we would set those things aside for a moment, that we here would focus on your word, that we would engage and interact with what you are saying to us from the Bible. Lord, help us to do that and, and move in our hearts by your spirit. I pray that we would be sensitive and that we would be responsive when we do sense what you say. I pray that for myself every bit as much as for everyone else. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in 1 Timothy, chapter 6. Chapter 6, and we are so close to the end. Final chapter of this great book, a letter from, uh, from Paul to Timothy, who's a young pastor who's ministering in this church, and he's got some issues he's got to deal with there. And so uh, we have this letter written. And it's uh, been encouraging for me. It's been very challenging for me 
It's often called a pastoral epistle, and as a pastor, I kind of take that to heart, and so it's been very challenging to me for sure. We're going to look at a a few different issues this morning at at the beginning of of chapter 6, and we're going to be talking about perspective. Perspective. Now, perspective is a very interesting thing. It it can change the way you think about things. I remember um, when we were fundraising, we were just about to go overseas, and we were visiting numerous churches. I don't know how many churches we visited, probably a modest number, maybe a dozen churches. I don't know exactly. Uh, I know many missionaries visit literally a hundred churches before they go overseas. We visited maybe a dozen, maybe 15. But one day we were leaving a church service and, and uh, one of my kids, as we were driving away, said, Dad, are we famous? I thought, are we famous? And, and, and she said, yeah, because everywhere we go, everybody knows us. And we stand up front and everybody looks at us and and talks to us. Everybody knows who we are everywhere we go. Are we famous, Dad? I thought that's, you know, pretty interesting observation, right? It's all about perspective. It's all about perspective. When I was a senior, I became a believer the last two months, the last two or three months of my senior year. And uh, the first day I sat right back there where Georgia Kavanaugh is sitting. Everybody look at Georgia. Hi, Georgia. And then after that, we scooted up here and we all sat here on subsequent Sundays. I don't know why. I kind of think it was my idea, but I think everybody thinks it was their idea. But we sat up here in the front, right? And, and I learned about church right there. I watched it happen right there. I didn't, I didn't know what church was about. I had never really gone before and I didn't know what a pastor did and I didn't know anything about the Bible. And so Mr. Duncan would have his Bible and be preaching and I was right there and I got to see the whole thing, you know? And uh, that was my perspective. I, I, I saw it from right there. And then now, things are, are a little different. I have a little bit different perspective. Here I am standing up here, and I'm looking this direction. And the perspective is a little bit different. It's, uh, it's interesting. From sitting right there, you would never notice, for example, what I notice here, that there's a gravitational pull that direction. I don't know why. But we, we see people kind of being sucked back into that corner. And you can't really tell that from where you are, but I can from up here. And I think some people don't realize that what something else I can see from my perspective is when you fall asleep. Because I can see that. You're here. <laughs> and it's just kindness that I don't say your name loudly as you fall asleep. Perspective is interesting. And sometimes changing our perspective can help us make a little bit better sense of a situation. Right. And today we're going to look at three aspects of life. To get a biblical perspective on those aspects, we're going to look at slavery, we're going to look at doctrine, and we're going to look at money. Okay, slavery and doctrine and money. Follow with me here. Starting in chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants or slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So interesting passage on slavery in the Bible. Slaves, bond servants, right? There's, There's real debate about which word we should use. I mean, literally, the word means slave, but the connotation from the first century New Testament time of what a slave was is different than the connotation we have in our minds from our perspective about slavery, right? We're thinking about what 
went on in the South, particularly in our nation recently in the last couple of hundred years. And so we have that definition of slavery, right? It's based on race, right? And it's, and, and it has this particular thing in our mind and we identify people who, who are maybe are slaves or slave owners in our mind. The situation is, is different, just different characters going on in the new Testament time. And so it's still slavery, but it has a different flavor. And so why, uh, why doesn't the Bible just say slavery is evil and call it out for what it is and, and give commandments regarding it, how to solve it? Why doesn't the Bible do that? Have you ever wondered that? It's been asked a lot. That question gets asked a lot. Why doesn't the Bible just do that? Come out and address it very clearly. Well, I have uh, seven things here. This is all by way of introduction, by the way. I have, I have seven points here, things for us to think about regarding slavery in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, okay? First of all, Paul never says it's good, ever. In fact, he includes enslavers among those who are lawless and disobedient. Flip back to chapter 1 and verse 10 here in, in verse Timothy. Same book, just earlier on. Right? Paul says, starting in verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Okay, who are they? For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, etc. So he has called it out as evil. He never says it's good. So first of all, he includes enslavers amongst the lawless and the disobedient, right? Secondly, slaves are repeatedly told to submit to their masters in the New Testament, but nowhere are masters ever told to make their slaves submit. Slaves are told to, sub- to submit to their masters. But never are masters told to make their slaves submit. You follow the difference there? You see that distinction? That's important. That's going to come out in our passage. Thirdly, according to Ephesians 6.10, the gospel breaks down the social distinctions between slave and free by saying that both are subject to the same impartial divine master. So that social order that existed in his day, Paul says, actually, in reality, the gospel breaks that down. It no longer has any validity. Both are actually subject to a divine master who is God himself. Fourthly, slavery in any form is evil. The slavery in Paul's day was different than what we have in mind in our day. Slavery in the New Testament times was not usually racially motivated. It was more the result of financial hardship or of a lost war or some sort of situation like that some social circumstance and slaves often chose to remain slaves for the economic security that they got out of the deal in the new testament times so it's a different beast right it's it's not quite what we're thinking of doesn't make it right and that's not what i'm saying but it's different than what we're thinking of fifthly in first corinthians seven twenty one, paul tells slaves hey if you can get free get free that's what you should do that's 1 Corinthians 7.21. Sixthly, the early church 
probably you knew this, the early church thought the Lord was going to come back right away. Immediately. They expected it like any day. Any day now, he's going to come back. They were, they were anticipating very eagerly that he was going to return very quickly. And so as a result, their major focus, their emphasis was on evangelization. It wasn't on taking a several year process to right the social wrongs in the culture. It was more to save people out of those, to go in and evangelize and lead people to Christ because the Lord is coming back anytime and you may not have another chance. You need to hear this right now. So that's where their focus was. They weren't taking the long view because they thought the Lord was coming back right away. And seventhly, the book of Philemon, right? Philemon is a slave owner and Paul is writing to him because Philemon is a Christian, Paul is a Christian, and this slave who has run away has become a Christian under Paul's ministry. And Paul is instructing these two believers, one of whom is the master and one is the slave, talking about this situation. So he writes this letter to Philemon, right? And he encourages Philemon, who's a Christian brother. He's a slave owner. He encourages him to free his slave. So everywhere, the consistent message in the New Testament is that slavery is wrong. Get free if you can. If you're a slave owner, free those slaves. That appears to be what he's saying here in in Philemon. Free those slaves. But if you find yourself in slavery and you can't get out of it, submit. You need to submit in that situation. And we'll talk about why in a little bit. So those, those seven points give us a little bit better idea about what was going on and why the Bible just doesn't just come out and say, this is the worst thing and we need to get rid of it. Paul chose to fight against the form of slavery that existed in his day on a smaller and a more personal scale, affecting change in his personal sphere, right? He wrote to Philemon and said, make this change, right? He spoke to slaves and says, if you, if you can get free, get free. He was making change within his sphere. But let's look here at a redeemed slave's perspective, a redeemed slave's perspective, point A. He says there, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants or slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit for their good service are believers and beloved. You see, there's a, there's a, a temptation, a, a tendency that happens. If, if you have one Christian, let's, I'll, I'll use an example from today. And of course, this is, it's, maybe it's just the closest we can understand right now. But uh, in our context that we're in right now, example of you have a Christian working for another Christian. And if you're the employee who's the Christian and you know that you're sitting right next to the guy who's your boss Monday through Saturday, and here you are on Sunday and he's a, he's a brother in the Lord. There's a tendency, a temptation when you go to work on Monday to lower him in your estimation because you were sitting right beside him and you saw he dropped something in the offer plate or you saw when he was got baptized or whatever, right? You saw him, and so you might lower him in your estimation because, hey, he's a brother, and you know we're kind, of, we're kind of equal. And so now you go to work, and you kind of feel like you can buddy up with the guy because he's your brother. And so what you've done is you've taken him and lowered him in your estimation because you're brothers. You follow me? I've done this before. 
I've done this. I, I've treated my bosses differently who have been believers because they're, they're, they're brothers. And I can come here and sit right beside them and, and develop this camaraderie, et cetera. And it actually, what I end up doing at work is lowering them in, their, in my estimation. But what Paul says to do is exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. He says, he says your, your master is a, is a believer. Treat him with all the more respect. Submit to him all the more. Treat him with more honor because he's a brother, not less. You, you need to build him up. You need to treat him super well because he's a brother. Not, not tear him down, not lower him, but treat him all the more with greater honor. I think the point here that he's bringing out is that the nature of Christian relationships is that we are not in them for what benefit we can get out of them. Instead, we are in them for how we can benefit others. How we can benefit others. So Christian employee with the Christian boss, benefit your boss, submit to him, treat him with even greater honor and even greater respect because he's a believer. And by the way, this is the essence of what biblical Christian love is, right? It's when you do the good for someone else, when you do for someone else what is actually for their good, they may or may not perceive it as their good, but you're doing for them what is good for them. That's love. That's what love is, and that's what's to be governing even this relationship. And so this is a redeemed slave's perspective. For the Christian, all relationships should be governed by this loving, redeemed perspective. How can I benefit others? How can I benefit others? Let's look at a redeemed slave's goal. He says, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The name of God, kind of like his reputation or his fame, right? What people hear about him, what people know about him, the name of God, so that the name of God, his reputation and the teaching may not be reviled. Even for someone who's in such an extremely low position as a slave, for that person, God's fame and reputation are more to be protected even than personal freedom and equality. That's countercultural. That's different than the way we see the world. That's different than the way I see the world. I value personal freedom pretty highly. And he says here, no, the name of God is to be valued even above personal freedom, even above liberty, even above equality. When a Christian has a less honoring attitude because he's a Christian, Christ gets a bad name. So those times when I dishonored or lowered the honor of my bosses because they were believers, that's dishonoring to God. Because someone from the outside who's not a believer is looking at this relationship and they're saying, wow, that's the way Christians treat each other? This is, this is the boss. He, he, he deserves a little bit of respect. And, and Brennan's treating that guy like, like they're buddies. Right? He's lowered him down. So this is the way Christians treat each other. This is the way Christians view honor. Right? This is what it's like to be a Christian. And, and you start lowering people's estimation of who God is. Start lowering his honor. You start attacking, essentially, the name of God. I'll, I'll give an, an illustration of this. <clears throat> when we lived in Chicago for the first few years, we lived in Chicago. Stephanie... Uh, worked in in this uh, particular company. It was a mid-sized company. I don't know, maybe maybe 40, 50, 60 employees, something like that. 
And uh, she worked on the 51st floor in the Amico building in Chicago and overlooking the lake. It was just gorgeous. This great place. But there were some people who worked there, not, not many Christians. And Stephanie definitely stood out like a sore thumb. They loved her there. It was great. They just loved having her there. She was very different. But there were some people there who were Christians. And because they were Christians, they, they lowered their estimation of their bosses. They cheapened the position that they held. They, they actually took the name of Christ and, and smeared it a little bit because they were Christians. Because they viewed it so, much, so clearly in their mind that, yeah, they honored the Lord, but you're just a boss. Why do I need to honor you? And they treated their bosses that way. And it's very disrespectful. And it was very clear to people around them that, wow, these are Christians? And what's the difference between Stephanie and these guys? Right? There's a big difference. There's a big difference. So the way we treat people, our attitudes, our perspectives are very important. All right, seniors, why do I have you sitting in the front? Not, not just so I can look at you and keep you in line. Think about this. Your attitude and your submission to authorities and employers over you impact God's reputation. So as you go to school, as you go to work, as you do the things you do, the way you treat your bosses, the way you submit in school, the way, the way you submit to the authorities over you impacts the way people around you view Christ. For good or for ill. And that's true of all of us, not just the seniors. It's true of all of us. When we go to work tomorrow, the way we behave impacts the way people around us view Christ. That should be a little bit sobering, right? That should be a little bit sobering. Christians have a different perspective on human social relationships and status. Those relationships and that status are secondary to God's glory. Secondary to God's glory. Move on and look at the second half of verse 2 here. Teach and urge these things, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So here we're talking about healthy doctrine and bad doctrine, good doctrine and bad doctrine. Let's talk about the good first, okay, the good news first. Let's talk about healthy doctrine. What is healthy doctrine? Well, first of all, he says that the false teachers are denying it there in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, etc., right? So the, the false teachers are denying this stuff. So whatever it is, the false teachers are denying it. What is healthy doctrine? Sound doctrine is the way it's translated in mine. Here's, here's what healthy doctrine is. Here's what healthy teaching, sound teaching is and what it does. It is loving and healthy, and it promotes godliness. To summarize, it's loving, it's healthy, and it promotes godliness. Remember what Paul said back in 1, 5, in 1 Timothy 1, in verse 5? It says, the aim of our charge is what? Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That was Paul's teaching. That was Timothy's teaching. That's healthy doctrine. It produces health, right? It leads to health amongst those who hear. 
healthy doctrine produces true godliness and spiritual health rather than the unhealthy controversy. That's the flip side, unhealthy controversy, right? These false teachers that, that Paul is talking about and that Timothy's having to deal with, they're conceited, they're self-important. They don't have any true understanding of spiritual things. Instead, they have a sick craving for controversy and they love to wrestle and wrangle over the meanings of words. They'd rather do that than talk about anything of substance. All of this produces painful and disruptive relational dysfunction, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction, right? So if you observe those things happening, you know that the teaching is lacking, right? If you're seeing envy, if you're seeing dissension, if you're seeing controversy and friction and slander and evil suspicions going on, there, there's very likely something wrong with the teaching, right? And that, these guys exhibited this stuff. This, this was characteristic of their lives. He goes further. He says, in the end, this kind of controversial teaching is really only fit for those, those who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. A very poetic and dark statement, depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. They would rather wrestle over irrelevant sideline subjects, moot points, than deal with anything of spiritual significance. They don't have the understanding for it. They don't have the patience for it. They don't have the knowledge for it. So they're going to stick over here and talk about these things that they can argue about. At the end of verse 5, we see that what their ulterior motive is. You see the end of verse 5 there? Depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Godliness is a means of gain. And we talked about what godliness is. Uh, godliness is a word that has, has occurred a lot in here. Do you remember what it is? See if you can dig down deep and pull out that great definition that we gave for it. Godliness is the outworking of the things that we hold inwardly. We believe the gospel. We believe the truth about the fact that we are a redeemed people completely by the grace of God, freely, that he would save us from this judgment that we deserve because of our sin. And more than that, that he would pile on righteousness from Christ onto us because of faith in Christ. That's what we believe inside. We believe we've been set free. We believe that we've been redeemed, that, that God no longer is hovering to crush us. We know that we don't deserve it. And so these things that are, that are true inside of us as Christians begin to work their way out. And that's godliness. When you begin to treat other people the way God treated you, with mercy and with grace and with patience, and with love, and with kindness, and with generosity. And we begin to treat other people that way because that's the way God has treated me. So our outward identity begins to conform with what is true inward, inwardly of us, right? Our godliness. Now, if you think about it, you can't peek into my heart and see what's really in there. All you observe is the way I live my life, right? And so you make certain observations and guesses based upon the way I live my life, right? And, and you, you come to a more or less accurate uh, d- description of who I am and, and whether my faith is kind of genuine or not, right? But I, I, the, the thing is, I could deceive you, right? I could deceive you. Since I can't show you what's in here and you can't peek in and see what's really there, I can just behave a certain way. Godliness, right? Godliness. I can act like it. I can fake it, right? And that's what's going on here. These guys think that faking it, acting like it, 
being in the front, doing the talking, doing the teaching is somehow going to pay them and they're going to make money off of this deal. That has become their motivation. They think they can be godly and make money on it. And so that is what is driving them. So what's uh, the Christian perspective on doctrine? What's the Christian perspective on teaching? How should we think about it? Well, look at the motives of the false teachers and compare them with Paul and Timothy's motives. Paul and Timothy are after sound, healthy, Christian spiritual growth in godliness. They are truly looking out for the good of others, of their hearers. The false teachers, on the other hand, they like controversy and they like money. They like what they can get out of the deal. That's the difference between the two. All right, seniors. The question has been asked in, in, uh, in our Sunday school class and you three, how do you choose a good church? You can't take Parkside with you when you go, right? That would be odd, you know. How do you choose a good church? Well, there's a lot that goes into that, and there's, there's uh, probably I could talk about it for a long time, but we'll start with this point, right? When you're choosing a church, look for one that has healthy doctrine. Healthy doctrine. One way you can tell that a church's doctrine is healthy is that those who have sat under its teaching for some time will have a healthy and loving and growing Christian life. You can observe the people who've been there and under the teaching for some time. That's what Paul was talking about back in 1.5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, etc. Remember that? That's what he's shooting for. That's what he's aiming for. Health. Spiritual vibrance. And so you can see... When you look at those who've been under the teaching for a while, you'll see that they themselves are not factious and fighting each other like these other guys. They don't have the dysfunction like the false teachers. Instead, they're growing. They're healthy spiritually, right? So that's one tip on how to choose a healthy church. Find one that has healthy doctrine. Doctrine or teaching is something to pay very close attention to. Healthy doctrine promotes a healthy Christian spiritual life. An unhealthy doctrine produces controversy, produces dysfunction. You all know what I'm talking about. The biblical perspective on greed and contentment is similar. He continues his thought. He's continuing along the same lines here. He continues in verse 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Godliness with contentment. Remember, they thought there in the end of verse 5, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They were trying to make a buck on the side from looking right and being in the teaching position. They were working that out to their favor. They thought it was a means, to, a means of gain. And Paul says here, but godliness with contentment is great gain, is great gain. First, when we talked about godliness, remember the outworking of the, the visible outworking of what is true inside of us? That's what we're talking about here. And that's why uh, these, these other guys, if you look down at point B on number three there, I put godliness in, in quotes because they're just pretending, right? 
But true godliness and with contentment is great gain. How is it? How is it great gain? A big paycheck? I don't... He's fighting against that, right? He's arguing against that. That's not what he's talking about. I think, first of all, there are a couple of points on this. First of all, the content person who understands what Job said in Job 121, which I'm sure you all have memorized, right? Job 121. You can just quote that. Awana probably doesn't do this one. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. There's a lot of instruction there. The content person understands that. And so because of that, he doesn't waste his life in pursuit of things that he can't take with him anyway, right? I was born naked and that's how I'm going to return. Nothing's going with me. I can't take any of it with me. So why waste my effort accumulating things in this life that I'm going to have to leave behind anyway? That's the first piece of wisdom there. The second one is that the content person dodges the colossal destruction that follows greed. Did you hear how the last part of that passage went? It was not good news, right? It was like watching the news. Downhill, it got worse and worse and darker and darker, the things that are happening here. He says... uh, he says in verse 8, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's dark. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want anything to do with that. And so the person who is content with what he has dodges all of that stuff all of those frightening things that are that are right there that that should put us on our guard and should make us wary the content person just sidesteps all of that and can go right around it they don't have to deal with it godliness with contentment is great gain now something we need to talk about here i haven't haven't talked about it yet but how does one become godly how does one become godly Is it to get your act in order? Is it to make the outward show very clear for everybody so that you will all draw the correct correct conclusion that, yes, I'm a Christian, because look at Brennan's behavior. Is that how one becomes godly? True godliness starts with the inside. It starts with what is in here, what's true inside of us. I said it's the outworking of the inward truth. Well, if the inward truth is not there or the inward truth is screwed up, The outworking doesn't really matter. You see, we are guilty. I am guilty. That needs to be a bottom line in my heart, in my inward truth. I know that I cannot measure up. And it's not because I don't have enough time to do enough good works. A big part of the problem is that I'm a sinner. And so even the good stuff that I do is tainted with my sin. And so even stuff that I think is I'm piling up good stuff, it's actually all tainted and poison. I'm piling up bad stuff. Now, of course, someone who's not a believer who gives money to charity and helps people out and is a surgeon and saves people's lives, that's all good stuff, right? That's all good stuff. I'm not saying that, they're, that, that, uh, that it's the same as Hitler, but that stuff is tainted somehow by the sin that's in our hearts. The things that we do, even though they look good and yes, in, they are good, but when you compare them to God's standard of perfection, God's standard of purity and what he demands of, of us, It's tainted. 
it's tainted. So we don't get to count it in the positive column. So I end up with nothing in the positive column and, and a mountain of stuff in the negative column. And so that's a bottom line truth of me. And God, who's holy, judges sin. And I'm in a bad spot. And this is where the good news of trusting in Christ, of looking at that and saying, there is no way I can resolve that issue. There is nothing I can do about that. No amount of work is going to produce anything in the positive column. It's only going to produce more in the negative column. And so it's, it's not just that I don't have enough time to do the work that I need to do. I'm not doing the work that I need to do, and there's no way I can. And so Christ, born in this world as a man, sinless, always obedient to his Father, perfectly righteous, perfectly righteous, died in my place to pay for this mountain of stuff and to give me his entire column of righteousness. That's the exchange that happens. That's what happens. And so that's that's the inward truth that I'm talking about. And when that becomes an inward truth, when you realize I need to trust in Jesus, I need to, to trust him for his sacrifice, paying the penalty for my sin and accept his righteousness. And in that way, I can be made right with God. And in only that way, there is no other way I can be made right with God. Then we've begun. Then we've begun. And that inward truth begins to live itself out in your life. You are different. You treat people differently, etc. You relate to the world differently. That's how godliness starts. It starts from within. It starts from that truth. Whereas godliness with contentment is great gain, godliness with greed, on the other hand, will net you disastrous results. Some people think that acting like a good Christian, appearing to be godly is a way to make money. You see it all the time, and there are scandals that we've heard about for decades connected with this. These guys love money, and they want to be rich. And that's one of their chief motivations for doing ministry, is to get rich. Godliness with greed, disaster. Now let's look at the root and the fruit. The root, he says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. We should all memorize that correctly, by the way. It's not money is the root of all evil. That's not what it is, right? It's the love of money is, a, is the root of all kinds of evils, right? Not every single evil that exists in the world is there because of money or because someone loved money, but all different kinds of evils. And you can look in your own life, if you're honest, and observe that same thing. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And what's the fruit? Well, I'll go through it quickly here. Temptation, a snare, many senseless and harmful desires which produce ruin and destruction, and some have wandered away from the faith, and they've pierced themselves with many pangs. There's the fruit. We don't think about that usually when we start slipping into loving money. We just think about the good stuff it can get us and not understand the fruit that comes with it. So what's a biblical perspective on money? Well, God and his kingdom make up the bottom line in our lives. Our fiscal bottom line is not the bottom line of our lives. If it is, we are confused and screwed up and we're inviting these sorts of things right we get them confused we get them switched around we can expect the life devastating fruit of temptations of harmful desires of ruin of destruction etc that he talks about so seniors the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils first we can't take our possessions with us into eternity so why spend our brief time here on earth accumulating them. Seems like a waste of time to me, and it is. 
Number two, in fact, seeking to accumulate wealth in this world could very well dangerously distract you from ever pursuing God's kingdom in the first place. If, if those desires become greater than your desires to pursue God at all, what do you think you're going to do in your life? What do you think is going to be produced? If this temptation, if this desire competes more and more and you give it more of your attention, you give it more of your, of your time and more of your talents and everything like that, this one decreases and this one increases. This becomes your God and leads to the destruction that we talked about. So the bottom line in our lives has to be God's glory, has to be us seeking after him. That's what we got to seek out. Don't be distracted by this other stuff. It's easy to, to get distracted in this regard because life is easier with money. Seems like. Man, it comes with a, a heavy price, it comes with a heavy price. There is great gain with godliness, with contentment. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. As Christians, we've been set free from the lie that this world is all there is. We know about eternity. We know all that's offered for us in God's presence for eternity. I was reading in Psalm 16 this morning, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So let's live our lives trusting that those words are true and do like Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to us. So in conclusion, slavery. I didn't, I didn't deal with it super thoroughly. I was trying to move a little more quickly through this. But as Christians, we are not in our various relationships different kinds of relationships. We are not in them, even the difficult ones, like a slave's relationship with his master. We are not in those relationships for what we can get out of those relationships. We are in those relationships, not for ourselves. We are in it for the other person. As believers, we are in them for the good of the others and for the glory of God. So think about the various relationships that you have. And some of them are probably not easy. But if you can switch your mind in that relationship so that you're not trying to get the best you can out of that relationship for yourself, but instead do the best for the other person, that will make some changes in your thinking. Money, biblical perspective on money. Bible tells us that loving money is a trap that leads to all kinds of problems. We as Christians know that God provides for our needs and that godliness with contentment frees us from these dangers of loving that money. We have a, we're set free and that is great gain. We've been warned about what comes with it. We've been set free from the need to love money, to desire it, to make it our God, to pursue it to the utmost. We've been set free from that. Finally, Bible teaching. Bible teaching and doctrine, ministry, is never about what we can gain from it. The teaching of the Bible is the teaching of the good news for other people. The message that God offers us free deliverance from the guilt of our sins by faith in Christ. That in fact, he offers to make us not just innocent, but also righteous. Is the best news that's ever been told. And it's free. And it's free. And so in our relationships, make that a free offering to the person you're relating to. 
Put that out there so that it's for their benefit. It's for their benefit. You're benefiting them and loving them when they understand the truth. There are other ways to benefit them. There are other ways to love them. But the gospel is the greatest news and the greatest gift ever. And we have that to offer to people. All right, final word to seniors. On that note, the gospel. You guys are going to have opportunity in your next stage in life. In the Navy, in school, you're going to have opportunity for the gospel. You're going to have opportunity to talk to people about the truth, to encourage other people to pursue it, to dig in, to look for it. And you can set a tone right now. You can set a tone right now that will carry you through that you are going to make the gospel a point in your relationships and you're going to make the gospel important in your conversation with other people. That you would relate rightly with people, that you would love them, treat them the way they should be treated, and that you would tell them the truth. Because not everybody around you is going to believe it. I think the, uh, you know, I said when I was a senior, I, I, I sat right there and when when I went away to school and left Fallon as a brand new Christian, sharing the gospel was a part of my life that had been been instilled in my life from day one and uh, from day one as a Christian, sharing with other people. It's just what you do as a Christian. And it wasn't until years later that I realized it's kind of scary and not all Christians do it. And it kind of kind of cool off and don't really want to do it anymore. But I'll tell you what, take that excitement. Sharing the gospel is what Christians do. We're like beggars who found bread. Why wouldn't you tell other people where the bread is? It's free. And that's for all of us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these seniors who are graduating and going forth. They're going to have opportunity. They're going to have challenges. They're going to have temptations. They're going to have great success and great joy and and uh, sorrow too and uh, experience a lot of life in the next phase of it. I pray that you would bless them, Lord. I pray that their uh, next weeks and months at home before they leave would be encouraging and would be a time where they can get even more grounded in your, your word and your truth. Lord, I pray that you, by your spirit, would use them. I pray that you, by your spirit, would use us, that we would no longer sit on the gospel and keep it under a basket, but that we would talk to people about it, that we would get good at explaining it to people, that we would implore the people around us to trust in you. Lord, I pray that for all of us. pray that you'd bless us this week. Thank you again for those who have given their lives that we can uh, have this service and freedom and we can have the other freedoms and the, the benefits we have of living in this culture. I pray that we would use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.